0: Good morning and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. We're delighted that Ryan Ratz is our speaker today. He is going to be introduced to us by John Lurie. John is the Section Chief of Hospital Medicine and he's a full professor in medicine, in orthopedics, and at the Dartmouth Institute. Come tell us about Ryan's, uh, well, introduce Ryan and also there are no conflicts of interest to to declare with this uh, presentation. Your code is V-I-X-T text that in, and you'll get your CME credits. All right. So I've been uh, told to keep this short, so I'll keep this short. Um, But, you know, going through Ryan's CV to introduce him makes words like polymath pop into your head. Um, So Ryan seems to do lots of things. He seems to like to do things in pairs. So he... uh, Got his undergraduate degree from UC Berkeley where he double majored in history and chemistry. He then went and got an MD-PhD from Boston University with a PhD in molecular and cell biology. He then did his residency training in medicine and pediatrics at the combined program at MGH and Boston Children's. Joined DHMC at, in 2010 where he's both a, an adult and pediatric hospitalist. Um, He's an assistant professor of medicine and an assistant professor of pediatrics. He was a Hitchcock Foundation scholar from 2012 to 2015, and his academic research interests um, include both uh, device commercialization as a member of the New, Ang- New England Pediatric Device Consortium and basic science focusing on endosomal trafficking and escape, and it is the latter that he's going to enlighten us about today. So. Please welcome Ryan with me.
1: Great. Well, thank you for that introduction. Um, It is a pleasure to be here this morning, and many of you know me through my work and role as a hospitalist, but today I'm here to talk to you about one of my true great passions, and that is diphtheria toxin. Who here has ever actually seen a case of diphtheria? Wow. So one. And I'm just really curious, quickly, where were you? How old was the patient? And when was this? It was in Mozambique, about 40 years ago. Wow. So a lot of us think of diphtheria as being a conquered disease, and it's not. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. But I'm going to share with you one of my true passions, and that are fusion protein toxins. What do we use them for? We're going to talk about how bacterial protein toxins get inside cells, because if you're going to use these, uh, devices to enter a cell, you should understand how it works, and then what are the platforms that we use to study this, and how maybe you can you relate that to other diseases that involve and, and involve endosomal trafficking. So, being clinicians, I think it's a good point to step back and review diphtheria since none of us have actually seen it. Um, it's a gram-positive rod, corneobacterium diphtheria. It comes in sort of three different antigenic strains based on how they grow on plates. The toxin, which is what causes all of the virulence, is actually not encoded by the bacteria. It's actually encoded by a bacteriophage. And if you're unlucky enough to get diphtheria two to five days after exposure from uh, respiratory droplets, direct contact, it's actually very contagious. Uh, The classic symptoms you see here on the board, skin ulcerations um, or involvement in the nasal or pharyngeal space, in particular this gray pseudomembranous plaque, and that's a hallmark. You can imagine in a pediatric patient, such as in this one here, who's missing their front teeth, um, obstruction of that airway can really cause a big problem in respiratory distress. If you're unlucky enough where the toxin actually spreads into your bloodstream, now you get really sick. More than 20% of these patients will develop myocarditis. Um, ARDS is pulmonary edema is very common. A lot of these patients will actually go on to develop paralysis and respiratory failure. And if you don't treat that, it's at least 25% uh, mortality rates uh, to as high as 50%. Probably one of the first uh, people to ever really accurately describe the clinical syndrome was the Roman Encyclopedia SD Medicine. I would remember I was a history major, so we're going to get a little history here. Um, And then after the Renaissance, it was known as the strangler or the kissing disease and probably affected social norms of how you interacted with people, believe it or not. It was huge here in New England for the colonists. In the 1730s, 1740s, there were waves of epidemics of diphtheria. And if you go to some of the cemeteries in New England, you'll see entire families that died of diphtheria. Um, It really didn't become, oh, and do we have medical students in the room? Anyone? Great. So you're lucky now, back in the 1900s, you had to actually write a thesis, and before graduation, you had to defend that thesis to the faculty. And if you go back, and out of uh, about uh, 1,200 theses that were written, uh, diphtheria comes up as one of the most popular topics that was written at the time. Princess Alice, right here, Queen Victoria's daughter, is one of the more famous deaths from diphtheria at the end of the 19th century. She was a big farmer at the pit. she was into nursing, she was friends with Florence Nightingale, and her whole family, her daughter who she was nursing died of diphtheria, and then Princess Alice died of diphtheria. And this made the newspapers, and the British Crown started throwing money into medical research and a lot of the wealthy elite in the United States, the UK and Europe started putting money into medical research and where you put the dollars, the research tends to follow. And it becomes sort of at the turn of the century a who's who in medical research. O'Dyer who was a New York surgeon has really developed intubation in the form that we know it today and the types of tubes that we know it today for diphtheria and he actually unfortunately died of diphtheria. And then it becomes uh, that bacteria was identified by clubs, as in Klebsiella. The toxin was actually identified by and Yersin, as in Yersinia. Um, And it becomes a who's who. The first Nobel Prize in medicine was Von Berling, who's right up here in the corner, and Paul Ehrlich for the development of antitoxin. They would put the toxin into horses, and you could then take the antibodies from the horses. And it really changed the treatment of diphtheria at the turn of the century. People started making all sorts of versions of antitoxin, and they weren't all the same, and people were getting sick. And so it led to Congress passing uh, the United States Public Health Safety Hygienic Laboratory, which became the NIH. Um, And sort of our modern immunology, things like the Schick test, which the PPD is placed on, all came from diphtheria. Um, And that's a version of the Schick test right there. Does anybody know who this is? The statue in Central Park. It's Balto. So in the 1920s, there were still, despite the development of antitoxin and early immunization, big outbreaks of diphtheria. And in Nome, Alaska, in January, in the middle of winter, one doctor, four nurses, population of 10,000, diphtheria outbreak. And the closest antitoxin was in Anchorage. Well, they didn't really have airplanes that could fly very far or through winter storms back then, so they put it on a train from Anchorage to Seward, and then they... Teams of dog letter, 674 miles from sewer to Nome. So we do the iterod still today, sort of in celebration of the great race for mercy. In more modern times, a lot of us think of that in medicine since, you know, World War II and the advent of penicillin. It's really studies in diphtheria of toxin have been at the leading edge for all bacterial protein toxin. It really is the paradigm. It is the most heavily research toxin. It was one of the first toxins where we learned its DNA sequence. We learned about bacteriophages. It's one of the first toxins that we learned its enzymatic activity. And it's the first toxin that was turned into fusion protein toxins, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. And this was Jack Murphy, um, who I actually did my PhD with. Um, Diphtheria still exists today. Um, The Red Country is sort of the last map that the CDC has put out since 2010, so it's a little bit outdated. But mostly in uh, areas where there's populations that live are sort of off the grid, don 't get immunizations, Africa and a large portion in Asia. We learned a lot with the collapse of the Soviet Union that you have to maintain vaccination programs. So in 1989, when the Soviet Union started to collapse, immunization rates declined, and when a few years later, there was an outbreak in Russia of diphtheria toxin, anywhere from 40 to greater than 150,000. And even with modern medicine, if you were more in the Baltic region where you had access to antitoxin and you know modern hospitals, fatality rates were somewhere around two to three percent. If you were farther away, mortality rates were more like 25 percent. In the United States. From 1980 to 2001, there have only been, uh, there's actually 57 documented cases. There's 55 on this graph. We only knew the age for 53 of those. And what's really interesting is it's not just kids. It's a lot of older people, It's adults that are more likely to see diphtheria. And it's because in the adult population, you lose that immunity over time. A lot of people don't get re-immunized. And then what's interesting is, we don't think about diphtheria. And so our case fatality rates in the United States were actually somewhat high, 5 to 10 percent, mostly because patients don't recognize this. There's actually some beautiful case reports in the Scandinavian countries, Norway in the 1990s. They had the same problem. They weren't expecting diphtheria. They had cases that were they were late to recognize, and so they had poor outcomes. Um, this just sort of – Lets you know that we're going to be seeing more diphtheria in the future. So this is the World Health Organization. These are immunization rates back in 2016, and the numbers are a little bit hard to read here. But the dark blue is greater than 80 percent. Um, light blue is 80 to 89 percent. The pink is sort of 50 to 79, and the red is less than 50 percent. Those are going to be problem areas. And what's interesting is those areas actually map to areas of active conflict: Syria, Ukraine. Uh, Chad, South Sudan, and so we're going to be seeing, most likely in the next few years, increasing rates of diphtheria in these regions. And what's even sadder about that, these are probably regions where patients aren't going to have access to antitoxin, aren't going to have access to a lot of the supportive care that they would get in other countries. And so if you have patients that travel to these regions, most of the patients, or if you get a patient that you find with diphtheria here in the United States, it's probably because they travel to an endemic region. So before we move on to talk about fusion protein toxins, in case you are one of uh, those rare people to see diphtheria in the United States, you better know how to treat it. Um, So antitoxin is key. Antibiotics, penicillin, and erythromycin together are considered first line. The erythromycin, like clindamycin, inhibits uh, the ribosome. Protein synthesis shuts down further toxin production. Supportive care. In those more severe cases, they're more likely to have myocarditis, so you might consider a screening EKG or checking for troponins. You're going to want to send your throat culture, but you need to grow it on special Loeffler's medium. The regular throat culture probably won't work, so I suggest you probably consult infectious diseases and let them know you're doing that. They will help you. You'll want to accelerate verification of the toxin, and then you need to make a request to the CDC for antitoxin. It is still made in horses to this day. And it's actually no longer made in the United States. There is no version that has license um, or approval by the FDA anymore in the United States. So it's an experimental uh, medicine now, and it's basically it's from a pharmaceutical that distributes it in places like uh, Asia and India. And coming very soon, and we're going to talk about today, maybe you will no longer need antitoxin, but maybe we can actually pharmacologically with other agents block toxin entry. And then importantly, you're going to want to talk about potentially prophylaxing contact, especially if they haven't been immunized recently, and potentially screening for carriers. So this is diphtheria toxin. It is secreted as a single polypeptide chain. It's got three structural domains, and they have pretty much exclusive function. There's a catalytic domain, and this is going to be what's called the A portion of the toxin. And then there is a receptor and a transmembrane domain, which are considered the B portion of the toxin. And so bacterial protein toxins, they really come in three types. Type 1 is they just have effects on the surface of the cell, but they don't enter the cell. Type 2 are those toxins like hemolysin that punch really huge holes and just obliterate the cell right from the get-go. And then type 3, which is what most people think of toxins, are the AB toxins. And generally, there is a catalytic domain called the A part, and there is a part that will bind a cell, form some sort of pore, and that's the B part. So I highlighted here for you the receptor binding domain in the endogenous toxin. And what if you just replaced it with something else? So in this case, we replaced it with interleukin2. And what you've effectively done is you have now retargeted where this toxin is going to go. So this is a fusion protein toxin. It's called DAB because it still has the first 389 residues of diphtheria. It has the diphtheria A, the catalytic domain. It has the translocation domain, the B. And now you have the interleukin-2 receptor. At some point during entry, you're gonna need to get rid of this catalytic domain. So there's actually a protease-sensitive loop that connects the two, and they can still remain linked together by a disulfide bond. And those are two really critical steps in terms of entry for the toxin. So why target the uh, high-affinity interleukin-2 receptor? Um, One, because it was really convenient at the time of the lab. Um, They actually made multiple different versions. It was just probably the one that came out of the pipeline first. Um, Where is the high-affinity interleukin-2 receptor? It's on activated T cells. So in terms of hematological malignancies, well, that's a really attractive target. So for your leukemias and your lymphomas that have T cells, This is a great tool. And in terms of biologics that you're going to give to a patient, things that are in the bloodstream or easy access to blood supply are also clinically useful things to test out your biological versus maybe a structure that's buried in a tissue that doesn't have good blood supply. What's also nice is that the receptor is internalized in the same way that the wild-type toxin is internalized. And that's going to be important, as we're going to learn about in a little bit. And in addition... Um, this fusion protein toxin, I don't have interleukin-2 receptors in my mouth or on my skin. And so it's actually a really safe surrogate for studying toxin entry and doing genetic tests and mutations with the toxin. Um, the biosafety office is certainly a lot more comfortable when you make mutations in the fusion protein toxin than if you start playing around with the entire wild-type toxin. From a research side, anything that you're doing, anytime you have to fill out less paperwork, that is always a good thing. So we're going to sort of jump forward. We're not going to talk about a lot of the development. We're going to go straight to the phase three clinical trial of looking at Ontag. So Ontag is the brand name for this diphtheria toxin fusion protein toxin, and it was studied in cutaneous C- cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. So this is mycosis fungoides where you get deposition in the skin, and then there can be a leukemic variant called Cesare syndrome. The incidence in the United States is 5 to 6.4 per million per year. So there are actually several thousands patients in the United States who have this disease. For It was a double randomized uh, trial. The randomization was good. I'm not going to dive down too detailed into those studies. They were, whoops, they were given two dosings um, based on the phase one and the phase two. Ultimately, the placebo arm was transitioned into the treatment arm. Um, to qualify for the study, you had to have at least 20 percent of what we considered a normal level of expression of the interleukin-2 <clears throat> high affinity receptor. Is there a threshold or a certain magic number that really matters? It's hard to say. We don't know yet. But if you don't have the interleukin-2 receptor, this is not going to work, right? It binds to the interleukin-2 receptor. The patients who were involved in this trial had relatively, either not necessarily advanced disease, but had failed more than four prior prior therapies. Or if they had advanced disease, they had to have at least failed one prior therapy. So these are patients who have refractory cutaneous T-cell lymphoma that's not responding. And it, like uh, a lot of other biologicals, it was given as an IV push for five consecutive days in sort of a, and then 21 days later for a total of six cycles, so over six months. So you can imagine if you have mycosis fungoides, especially as in this uh, gentleman, this is really going to have an impact on your life. And uh, I'm just going to show you, sometimes I think a picture is worth a thousand words. So here's a patient, he's failed all their therapies. Here he is at the end of the trial. Pretty dramatic, impressive results. You can see over time, the nose part went away quickly. Still, some of the lesions here on the face, it took a little bit of a time. But this would be a patient who actually had complete remission in the course of the trial. Again, pretty dramatic response. Here you have a significant reduction in the number of lesions. There's still some right here on this gentleman's elbow, but probably 80 to 90% of those lesions are gone. And lastly, imagine if you had these on your hands, how that would impact uh, the quality of your life on a regular basis. And again, here is a patient who had essentially a complete response. Not all patients were that lucky. So to be considered a responder in this trial, you had to have more than a 50% reduction in your tumor burden. You had to have no new lesions, no progression of some of the lesions, And you had to have at least sustained response for greater than six weeks. So clearly, for some patients, I don't think we honestly know why, it didn't work. For some patients, they had a pretty significant reduction in their tumor burden. Almost looks like they were uh, complete responders, but it didn't last. For 30% of the patients, they were considered responders. So they had greater than a 50% reduction and the symptoms did persist. Actually, the median here in terms of was anywhere from five months, It was sort of the median, but the range was from two months to 46 months at the time of trial. And anecdotally, I know that at least two of the complete responders are still alive and are still disease-free. So from a cancer trial of patients that might be have refractory disease, this is a pretty good outcome. I think we're in a pause here for a second and say, well, gee, I thought everyone was immunized against diphtheria. How did this work, right? If I was immunized, shouldn't that not work? So all of you are immunized against diphtheria. But the antibodies that you make can target the receptor-binding domain, the catalytic domain, or that transmembrane domain. Most of the receptors and the neutralizing antibodies are to the receptor-binding domain. Well, We've replaced that, so you don't necessarily have antibodies to the interleukin-2. And the antibodies to the C domain and the T domain don't neutralize the toxin. During entry, we're going to learn about in a little bit, the toxin unfolds, and so those antibodies probably fall off. And so one of the things that we were really interested in is, well, what happens to the antibodies uh, in these patients? So for all of these patients, the majority of them had antibodies to diphtheria toxin. That didn't seem to block or do anything in terms of their ability to respond to therapy. There was an increase a little bit in terms of the antibody of their titers by the end of the trial, but we honestly have no idea if that impacted the trial or not. Really wasn't something that was studied in this trial, which is one of its probably biggest downfalls. The other thing is patients started developing antibodies to interleukin-2. And so that's a little bit of a warning. We don't know if those actually blocked and if maybe that's why some of these patients didn't respond is because they were developing neutralizing antibodies to interleukin-2. And it might matter if you form antibodies to your surrogate ligand. Now, in the case of cancer therapy, if your ligand is only targeting your cancer cells, well, maybe giving them an autoimmune disease that targets that isn't such a bad thing, right? I mean, that's part of what a lot of our modern cancer therapy is, getting the immune system to kill a particular cell. But if you have healthy tissues, could you be potentially inducing autoimmune disease? We honestly have no idea. There are, on record with the U.S. federal government, 49 clinical trials. Ten of them are in uh, pediatric patients. And unfortunately, in 2014, although ONTAG was FDA approved in 1999, and it's the only bacterial protein toxin to have FDA approval, it got discontinued. And it didn't get discontinued because it didn't work. There's only one black box warning, and it has to do with potential eye involvement. It got discontinued because it's a really hard molecule to make, to manufacture, to purify. They Actually, they express it in bacteria, and you get these contaminants, not that contaminated with bacteria, but they get contaminated with lipids, proteins from the bacteria. And so if you are giving someone a little bit of LPS, for example at the same time that you're giving them their fusion protein toxin, that's going to give the patient a clinical reaction, an infusion reaction. Um, and we're going to talk about adverse effects in a little bit. But it came off the market, and so all of these clinical trials shut down. They're done. Um, the company that is formulating it has actually made another version. It's basically the exact same sequence, but they're producing it in a slightly different way. But it has to start over in the whole clinical trial spectrum. We're back at phase one. That just came out in March of this year, so hopefully within a couple of years that will be back on the market. Folks at NGH in Harvard are looking at trying, instead of making this fusion protein toxin and bacteria, can you make it in yeast? And maybe you don't have some of these issues. People are now looking at, you know, well, if I combine it with something else, is it going to work better? People are starting to look at, gee, maybe instead of just targeting cancer and killing cancer, can I modulate the immune system? And there's, this is a really attractive piece. Some of the preliminary data and some of the research that people have done, it's really conflicting. There's really, at least from a preliminary standpoint, contradictory results, and it's probably going to take us a while to tease that out. We probably need to think more carefully in these trials, how are we going to collect antibodies that are formed? There is no standardized method or form. And we don't understand uh, the mechanisms of resistance, and it costs a lot. So to complete a treatment course would be $120,000. We're going to have to find ways to bring that cost down. Um, adverse effects. So like a lot of other biologicals, interferon, interleukin-2 itself, we use it sometimes. Um, monoclonal antibodies, we use them all the time. This, the side effect profile is pretty similar. Um, the big thing is uh, 5 to 15% will have a moderate to severe reaction, and most of it is... An infusion reaction, hypotension, shortness of breath from pulmonary edema, chest pain, flu like symptoms. This can actually put you in the ICU. These patients can get sick pretty quick. You can pre treat them with antihistamines and corticosteroids. And we don't really know why this happens. There's probably three hypotheses. One, are you getting activation of interleukin 2? That's a cytokine, right? If you give people interleukin 2, you'll induce a cytokine storm potentially sometimes. Is it maybe there's impurities that are in that manufacturing process and you're know, responding to that? Is it maybe some patients who have previously been immunized, something's happening with their own immune system that's causing this reaction? A little bit later, infection. You just knocked out all of their activated T cells. It takes time for them to come back. Um, And then they can get sort of hypoalbumemia and this vascular leak syndrome, which we're going to not talk about today. So, um, this is a little bit of an older list of diphtheria based fusion protein toxins. I'm still using this list because uh, Jack, who I did my PhD with, retired, and I have the entire library of fusion protein toxins from the Murphy lab sitting in a freezer in Borwell. So if any of these sound appealing to you, (laughs) you should come and talk to me. There are now probably somewhere, depending on how you want to look in the literature, at least a couple years ago, closer to 50 diphtheria toxin-based fusion protein toxins in development. Most of these are in cell culture and cell lines, very far away from clinical trials but we're going in that direction. And people have applied this technology to other fusion protein toxins. So pseudomonas, anthrax, lethal effect are probably the other two sort of constructs that people are designing, similar-based fusion protein toxins, just retargeting the toxin. And based on all of these, we have learned a lot. I told you IL-2 wasn't the first one. Actually, uh, melanocyte-stimulating hormone was the first one. The problem is, is that sometimes... Replacing that receptor binding domain can really affect the solubility or the stability of the toxin. So that melanocyte-stimulating hormone fusion protein toxin just isn't stable. It just degrades for some reason quickly. Um, We talked a little bit about uh, the immunogenicity. Depending on what you choose, if you're developing antibodies to that, that may or may not have a clinical significance. Um, The clinical safety profile for all of these fusion proteins is going to be different because they're all targeting something different. They're all potentially activating endogenous receptors in addition to eventually killing the cell. So you're gonna have to, for each and every single one of these, go through a whole clinical trial phase. Even if you change the purification scheme of that toxin, you're gonna have to go through the whole uh, clinical trial phase. And then ultimately, however you bind needs to at least internalize the toxin into the appropriate category so it can actually enter the cell. So if you're interested in using any of those fusion protein toxins, come talk to me. And the next question you should be asking yourself is, well, what else can you deliver? Right? We can retarget this machinery. Can you take out the catalytic domain that's killing the cell and deliver something else? And you can. People have spent a lot of work looking at various different things, and we're not going to go into the details today. What I can say is you just can't remove the catalytic domain completely. You can add things to it, and they'll get in, and a little bit less efficiently than wild-type toxin, but there's something buried in the catalytic domain that's required for entry, and we don't know yet. Actually, at the time that ONTAC got FDA approval, we had no idea how the catalytic domain got inside the cell. We knew that toxin would bind its receptor. In the case of endogenous wild-type diphtheria toxin, it binds the heparin-binding epidermal growth factor-like precursor, just like any other receptor-mediated process, it gets pulled into calcium-coated pits. The vesicle gets internalized. It gets shunted into the early endosomal pathway. Characteristic feature of early endosomes is they get acidified. You pump acid into it, and under that uh, pH change, the translocation domain inserts into the membrane. It forms a pore. Catalytic domain unfolds, and voila, you're inside. So. Uh, endosomes, endosomal trafficking. Um, we're halfway through our talk, I always think it's a good idea. Take a second, will want everyone stretch your hands out. Move your fingers for me. <coughs> cool, you can put them down. So you all just participated in endosomal trafficking. <laughs> Specialized endosomes at your synaptic vesicles, right? That's what neurotransmitter release is, right? It's a very fast release of that neurotransmitter, and you've reabsorbed it pretty quick. And by the time I finish talking to you about that, this slide, and certainly by the time I finish talking about the next slide, you will have completely whoops, internalized through into an early where It gets acidified, and it can get sorted, and sometimes it will go back to the cell surface. So if with that pH change, your ligand falls off the receptor, and the receptor turns off, that's great. I can reuse that. It's a lot cheaper than having to build a new one. But if you couldn't knock that ligand off, or perhaps your receptor got modified that like cleaved in a way that's irreversible, you can't turn it off anymore, well, that's no good. So you shunt it off into the lys- lysosomal pathway in order for it to get destroyed. goes to the proteasome, and it's gone. Um, I like this particular slide uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it shows that we talked about clathrin-coated uh, pits. There's other ways, uncoated vesicles, cavioli. You can sort of pit engulf large things or macropenoisectosis. There's lots of ways to internalize. But a lot of these all get shunted into that early endosomal pathway. The other reason I like it is endosomes are not these perfectly round spheres. We show them that way because it's really easy to show it that way. But they're really these tubular, dynamic, there are vesicles that are coming in that are fusing together and vesicles that are coming off. Think of it as an amoeba. Sort of in there in the cell. It's constantly moving and changing shape. The other reason why I like this is it shows you multi bodies. As you get sorted into that lysosomal pathway, you start getting a bubble within a bubble within a bubble. And there's probably, although we don't know why this developed, there's two great advantages to it. One, if you had a receptor that you couldn't turn off, you don't want it signaling the whole time into your cytosol until it gets degraded. So if you bury it, a bubble inside a bubble, it's now lost access to your cytosolic compartment. And now you can take your time to degrade it. The other element is you're constantly being invaded. There's hackers everywhere. Bacterial protein toxins, viruses, and a lot of them have evolved to take advantage of this mechanism. And so if you bury that little bubble that might contain the toxin into a another bubble, it might get out of the first bubble, but it's trapped inside a second bubble. You see a lot of arrows here. These is like rush hour. It's the predominant flow of traffic. But there's traffic going the other direction, just not nearly as much. And there's actually communication between all of these compartments. You don't have to follow the error that you see. You can skip from the endosome directly to the nucleus or the endosome to the mitochondria. There are a lot of back roads. Trafficking is happening everywhere. I also like this particular diagram because it shows this codomer coat. Codomer is kind of like clathrin. It binds to and pulls off little vesicles, and it's involved. Usually, we think of transport of vesicles from the Golgi to the ER. I show this here because we're going to see codimer again, but it's typically not thought to exist out here in this endosomal pathway. There's some other major oversimplifications here, and that is, although it may depict endosomes as this irregular structure, what it doesn't show you is all the other proteins that are there. There's 750, 400, 1,200, depending on the study, proteins that are here in this endosome. It's not just the simple little bilayer. It's this thick, furry coat of proteins that are coming and going, right? So you just don't open a door and walk into an empty house. You're opening the door and walking in, a party that's in full swing. The entry hall is really crowded. You've got to wiggle your way, elbow past other proteins to get inside the cell. And along the way, someone's going to say hi. You're going to have an interaction with some of those proteins. So I put all of that into perspective for you to think about, because we're going to next talk about endosomal escape. We're going to use diphtheria as a paradigm model. One, it's because we actually know the most about how diphtheria enters. It probably is the best studied vector for endosomal escape. But I want you to think about these categories as we're thinking about endosomal escape. And we're going to talk about some different platforms of how diphtheria was studied to see what are things that might work, what are their pitfalls, what are these studies potentially missing. So we're going to go to pure artificial lipid bilayers. In the 1980s and the 1990s, most of toxin research was based on this. Um, If you took a pure lipid bilayer and you added toxin and then you artificially lowered the pH... You get the toxin to insert, you get it to unfold, and you put a little gradient, and voila, you get translocation across that lipid bilayer. So this led to the theory, the toxins spontaneously translocate. They contain all of the machinery themselves to do this. And that's interesting. Um, We certainly learned a lot from these studies about the toxins. We learned how they unfold. We learned how they insert into the membrane, the sequential steps. Um, to form the pore that they make, how maybe they have acidic residues in one side that when they're in the side of the endosome and it's a low pH, they get uh, protonated, they lose their charge, so they insert into the membrane, and when they reach this side, that proton falls off, and it's negatively charged, and it locks the pore into place. We learned a lot. We learned how once that pore is formed... Part of the translocation domain actually threads like thread through the eye of the needle that catalytic domain into this pore. So here the receptor binding domain is shown in sort of uh, gray color. The transmembrane pore is all these other multicolored helices and then the catalytic domain here is in blue. So imagine like thread. Through the eye of a needle right as long as that thread can unfold. You can pull it through. Right. But if you have a really big knot here and this can't unfold, try to pull through, Up, it gets stuck. So right there you learn one of the things in terms of delivering cargos is it's got to have some ability to unfold, or you need to have some ability to make this pore bigger. So um, this was a nice experiment um, where instead of using an artificial lipid bilayer, what they did is they just took a cell. So now it's a Physiologically relevant membrane, it's not the endosomal membrane, it's the cell surface membrane. You can cool that cell down so it shuts down endocytosis. You can artificially lower the pH, and voila, the toxin will form a pore. In the low pH, it will unfold, and the cell will die. Or you can measure the protein synthesis and it goes down. But if you take away ATP... toxin doesn't enter. The cell doesn't die. And this was sort of a red flag. Hmm, maybe there's something happening in the cell. Maybe this isn't such a spontaneous process. And if you take a step back, and you remember from your medical school days, um, protein synthesis into the endoplasmic reticulum, protein degradation out of the endoplasmic reticulum, mitochondrial import, there's big complex machineries that are mediating those translocation steps. Well, in the 1980s, a really useful tool came along, baflomycin A1. It shuts down the proton pump. So in these endosomes, there's a pump to pump that acid in, vesicular ATPase. And in the presence of baflomycin, you don't get acidification. You don't get the toxin to enter the cell. It's stuck inside that endosome. Actually, what's kind of nice is the trafficking of endosomes in general shuts down. You just start pooling early endosomes. And so you can take advantage of that. You can take a cell, you can incubate the cell with your toxin and with that inhibitor. And not quite completely to scale. These are really overdrawn diphtheria molecules relative, but they're gonna end up inside this, ah, oh, this little structure. And you can do a couple steps. What you basically do is you know, lice the cells. You get rid of all the really big stuff, like the nucleus, and then you take sort of that cytosol, which has little vesicles, and you do what's called a sucrose gradient. You layer sucrose at different concentrations. You put the endosomes actually at the bottom of the tube, and then you spin it in an old centrifuge. 160, 180,000 times the force of gravity, basically in a vacuum, 800 to 900 times a second. Think about that for a second. One, 1,000. You just went around 800, 900 times. What happens, based on their density, they float up, and they float up to the different stages, and you can... Uh, Basically, then look to see, well, what's contained in all of these? So you can take out those early endosomes, and now you can do an in vitro translocation assay using the endosome, a physiologically relevant system. This is probably the most powerful platform to study endosomal escape, because instead of using artificial lipid bilayers, that thick furry coat of all those proteins, they're here. And if you add back ATP and cytosol, actually you have to add back ATP and cytosol. And you put it in a buffer that mimics the cytosol, and you keep it at the right temperature, and you can play with time. Believe it or not, most of the translocation occurs uh, within the first five to ten minutes, but only a small subset actually translocates. And then you can pellet those uh, endosomes again, stick them back in that ultracentrifuge. And if you have toxin that's associated with the pellet, it's stuck in the endosome. It didn't come out. And if you have in the free solution, toxin, it came out. It translocated, and it might be in a refolded active state. It might be in a unfolded inactive state. Um, if you throw in basically a version of ATP that can't be hydrolyzed, or if you threw in antibodies to beta cop in the in the first experiment, it blocks translocation. Hmm, that was really interesting. One of the challenges in toxin research is these things are present at a really small amount. We're talking the picomolar, femtomolar range. So a lot of the standard techniques that people use to show the presence of a toxin, like a Western blot, don't really work very effectively here. We're generally below the level of sensitivity. So one of the challenges in doing these experiments is you can only track the toxin by its catalytic activity, right? That amplifies the presence of the toxin. An IV1 toxin molecule... But maybe if I get the, the toxin to do its enzymatic activity, will be 10,000 modified proteins, and I can easily see those. So for, to study or to see where toxin is, you have to actually do an uh, in vitro ribosylation assay. So the catalytic domain of diphtheria toxin works by taking from uh, nicotinamide adenine. Denosine, dinucleotide, and ADP molecule, adding it to elongation factor 2, which irreversibly modifies that factor and shuts down protein synthesis. So to track the toxin, you have to follow the catalytic activity. I'm not going to show you very many experiments today. I'm only going to probably show you two or three. But this is probably one of the first experiments that I did. Um, it's a relatively simple experiment, and it's probably the most important. And what we did here is we took our human endosome, with a diphtheria toxin in the middle and looked at what proteins could mediate that translocation step. But instead of using human proteins, used yeast proteins. Why yeast? Well, yeast grows really fast. You can make the proteins cheap. It's abundant. You can play a lot of genetic tricks. And lo and behold, you could substitute yeast cytosol for human cytosol with the human endosome and got the translocation event to occur. If you think about protein-protein interactions, they're like keys and locks, Right? They're pretty sensitive to, you can't wholly change them. And that suggested that whatever this mechanism was, it's really fundamental. This is a basic process that's happening at the endosome. So what we did is we started with a whole bunch of cytosol, you fractionate it for a whole different reasons, based on size, based on charge. You start with a lot, you end up with a little each step you have to track that catalytic activity, so lots of Uh, ribosylation assays, nine months later this process takes on average to do. But you can then identify the proteins that are there. And here's just sort of a partial list of some of the proteins that we found. And there were some really interesting candidates. There was a chaperone that mediates refolding. Hmm, that sounds attractive. And it's both in the yeast and the human version. Remember I told you about that disulfide bond that had to be released at some point? There is a reductase of disulfide bonds. Hmm, that's convenient. They're working together in a complex. We're not going to go through all of the experiments that we did, but basically, HSP90 is required for the cytosolic entry of the diphtheria toxin catalytic domain. HSP90 is uh, does a lot of things inside your cells. By the way, it's uh, usually part of a large complex with a lot of different co-chaperones. It will modify and do lots of different things all over the cell. This was actually the first report of HSP90 working or functioning at the endosome. Similarly, thioredoxin reductase. We're not going to go into all the experiments that we did, but basically thioredoxin reductase is needed for the entry of diphtheria toxin. What we did know from prior experiments that thioredoxin was probably involved, and so thioredoxin reductase is actually upstream of thioredoxin. It's hard to know 100% where exactly, although thioredoxin reductase is required, it's hard to know if there might be other proteins that are involved in that cascade before the actual toxin itself gets that disulfide bond reduced. What is really convenient at the time of this we were doing this research, it was also the time that the first proteomic analysis of yeast was coming out. And if you sort of used uh, the complex that we found, you know, Hsp90, thioredoxin reductase, uh, the beta cop, there were other proteins that were present, or other complexes, right? So this is a complex that actually does occur. And it also occurs in something called cyclophilin, which will sort of flip or rotate prolines when they're uh, in an alpha helix. And uh, experimenters have actually gone on to show that cyclophilin is involved in the entry of diphtheria toxin. Um, elongation factor 2, which is the substrate of diphtheria toxin, can be found in some of these complexes, and they certainly can associate with the endosome because there is this endosomal subunit of vesicular uh, ATPase. So um, when we first published this work, contradicted a lot of the field of protein toxins, and it took a little bit of time, but time and research is nice because it's now been independently verified by other labs for diphtheria toxin, but there is an increasing growing list of bacterial protein toxins that require the function of HSP90 to enter cells. Um, Cyclophyllum, which is a cofactor for HSP90, has likewise been found for like the clostridium botulinum C2 toxins, um, for iota toxin. This particular experiment right here is really nice, this one from Tehran in 2016, because it actually shows synergy in the entry of botulinum A and D and tetanus with bioredoxin reductase and HSP90. Hmm. There are other proteins, some viral proteins and even viruses that might use this mechanism, endogenous growth factors. What's really interesting is uh, antigen processing at the endosome requires the translocation of antigens across the endosomal membrane, both in innate immunity, and in the case of potentially some T cells, requires hsb 90 Likewise, thioredoxin reductase. So there were some prior studies that suggested or indicated that maybe thioredoxins were involved. This was sort of, um, but it's now been confirmed, both other labs for diphtheria toxin, but some other toxins that are entering cells as well. So if you think to yourself, hey, there's got to be some sort of protein-protein interaction that's mediating this. How can we solve that? So one of the things to do is you can do in-silico blast analysis. You can look for other things that you know that maybe enter the endosome. Um, do they have some regions in common? So here is a screening a, a region that, uh, of that first part that gets inserted with the catalytic domain and that part of that yellow, part still part of the translocation domain. If you do analysis, you pick up some really interesting sequences that are conserved in a lot of other toxins. And for reasons that we didn't know, People had previously, in the case of anthrax lethal factor, knew that this exact region was required, but no one knew why. It didn't need to be for receptor binding, at least in vitro, and lipid bilayers wasn't required for toxin injury. This is just sort of screening those things in a more graphical representation on the toxins themselves, um, and you can see that there is uh, sort of the the structure is, is quite similar, and in all of the regions that. Motif shows up in regions that would be consistent with first being presented through the pore and presented to the cytosol. What's particularly interesting with anthrax and botulinum A is they actually have one and a half copies of this epitope. So here's a full length, here's a partial length, here's a full length, here's a partial length. And the bottom part here is only show the partial length. But what's really interesting with these toxins is they cross the endosome, but they actually don't get released into the cytosol. They actually stay stuck to the pitom, uh, cytosol surface of the endosome in a folded state. And so perhaps this might be uh, part of the reason why. This is just my favorite experiment. Um, you can take that little motif, you can express it in cells, and you actually engineer toxin-resistant cells. So this would be what's considered a classic cytotoxicity assay. This would be HUT10260G. These are just regular human T cells. And as you add toxin, protein synthesis starts to shut down. Boom. If you engineer cells to express that little motif, they're resistant to toxin. And then if you go back and you knock out the gene that you just put in, you make the cells sensitive to toxin again. Which lets you know that, again, blocking the interaction between toxin and its cytosolic factors are inhibitors of toxin entry. I'm not going to go into all the details, but basically that T1 motif is involved in cotomer binding. And so what happens is codimer comes along, it recognizes those motifs, whether it's causing membrane curvature or something else. At least probably that first step is codimer binding. And then all of these other factors are coming in and are playing a role in the translocation steps, but we have no idea or understanding why yet. Um, we're going to talk about uh, sort of what I have been doing here at Dartmouth in the last uh, five uh, minutes. But before we do that, I just want to summarize a little bit about bacterial protein toxin. That uh, diphtheria toxin is considered the paradigm uh, molecule. Host factors are required. Um, Hsp90 is a key chaperone for uh, many toxins that are entering. Uh, Thioredoxin reductase is key for toxins that have a disulfide bond. Cotomer proteins are involved but there are other things to be identified still. This is only, it's kind of like the tip of the iceberg. Um, What I think is important is there's going to be a lot of variation between a lot of these different toxins. So although they're using the same mechanism, they all convergently evolve slightly differently. So there's going to be nuances. Sometimes one member of this complex might not be needed, or maybe it's replaced with something else. But the generalized concepts that there is this host cell complex that's going to mediate translocation is going to be consistent. Um, We reviewed uh, some of the platforms that we use, uh, lipid bilayers, in vitro endosomal assays, cytotoxicity assays. We didn't specifically talk about genetic screens. They have been useful. They have confirmed, for example, that HSP90 is required for the entry of diphtheria toxin. The problem with genetic screens is they don't tell you if it's receptor binding, catalytic activity, endocytosis, or the translocation step. And we'll also let you know that direct visualization doesn't really work in terms of studying endosomal escape. So um, I got really interested in endosomal trafficking, right? You have this fundamental complex that the toxin is recruiting and exploiting. Why is it there in the first place? What is it really doing? And I became less interested in what is here. I got really interested in what is here, right? 500 proteins, 1,000 proteins. How can I study that? And so this led to the hypothesis, well, maybe just like you do sort of affinity chromatography or you take an antibody and you pull something down, can I use that whole large endosome itself to do affinity chromatography? Can I study what's actually binding to the early endosome? So um, this is what uh, I did with money from the Hitchcock Foundation and from the Department of Medicine. Thank you very much. Um, was to develop an in vitro endosomal uh, recruitment strategy to study how proteins get recruited to the endosome Whoops, pre and post acidification. So here is just the endosome loaded with toxin. Here is an endosome that's loaded with basically an equimolar amount of interleukin-2. I don't want to study what binds the receptor, so I want activation of the receptor to be the same. I can mimic the conditions, ATP. Um, I add back the ADB ribosylation part because it's really interesting. And you can add cytosol. For the pilot experiment, if you're going to do affinity chromatography, you need, once you get things bound, you need to be able to wash it. You need to be able to rinse off things that aren't there specifically. So how do you rinse or wash this large organelle? So these for the pilot study, pellet it, resuspend it, pellet it, resuspend it, pellet, resuspend it. Um, That means that at least the cytosol that you use has to not have any vesicular components that are present. And then you have to have a way of distingu- uh, distinguishing between the proteins that are recruited and the proteins that are already there. And this is where SILAC comes in. So SILAC is stable isotope labeling using amino acids in cell culture. So basically, you grow up a bunch of cells that, in heavy amino acids. A mass spectrometer can tell the difference between C12 and C13. And so the endosomes here all contain normal uh, C12, but the cytosol that you added contains C13. So some things are just going to stick to the endosome. Some things might stick to just the transmembrane portion. And some things might actually stick because part of the catalytic domain is still there. And that's what we're interested in. We identified uh, 14 to 1,800 proteins on these endosomes. What I will tell you is there's other things there besides endosomes. So that sucrose gradient, you get things of similar size density. So there's parts of um, uh, mitochondria there. There's parts of the nuclear pore. So we're going to have to clean that up. Um, But what's really interesting here is um, it looks like this works. So in quantitative proteomics, you need at least a two-fold difference to be statistically significant. There's a lot of trends here. A lot of this is not quite statistically significant. It's right at the threshold. Um, If you look at things that um, interleukin 2 receptor, it's there. It's present in the same amounts. Uh, Vesicular ATPase, it's there. These are early endosomes. Early endosomal markers, RAB5, early endosome antigens, they're there. Um, markers involved in uh, progression of endosomes, RAB11, RAB7, we actually see some recruitment, of right? So we're seeing, as you would expect, as an endosome gets acidified, recruitment of the factors that are normally associated with endosomal trafficking. We see some things that are really unique and recruited only in the presence of toxin. We actually have uh, about 40 proteins identify that only in the presence of the toxins seem to be upregulated or recruited to the endosome. Really interested in those proteins. I'm really interested in this top one, actually, because it's a motor that connects uh, things on vesicles to the cytoskeletal framework and pulls them along. Well, that would be very attractive for a translocation step. Um, some of the things that uh, we were expecting, we were expecting to see a change. We didn't quite see a change. One, not that big of a recruitment of HSP90. Hmm. HSP-90 might actually already be there on the endosome before translocation. We would have expected to see somewhat of an increase in, like, for example, our specific recruitment of codimer. It's the difference between the C and the C-13 that's statistically significant, not so much the difference between the C and the C. And so we're going to have to make some modifications. This might suggest that Maybe we got some early acidification. Maybe there are some steps that we don't quite understand yet in the order and how things are getting recruited. But we actually have a fantastic platform to study how proteins are getting recruited to the endosome pre and post acidification. Um, that washing step, by the way, it doesn't work. So here are uh, those tubular structures, endosomes. Great. As soon as you pellet it and you resuspend it just once, you get these aggregated multi-lamellar bodies. Well that's a problem because you're going to trap things non-specifically in between there, right? So you got to clean that up. So second generation IVERP. We don't really have the answers from this yet, but basically label those endosomes now with a magnetic bead. So instead of uh, Pelleting them, you can wash those endosomes with this magnetic bead. And you can no longer need to get rid of any vesicular components. You can actually have other vesicles in the cytosol. So now you can study fusion events between different kinds of vesicles. Um, we're gonna skip this. Uh, sort of where are we? We need to take this secondary iverp and we need to finish the experiments. We need to and you gotta do the experiments three times, just not once, by the way. So takes a little bit of time um, and certainly validate our hits that we get from this. But this is going to be a great platform that we can use in a whole bunch of different ways. Not only can we start making or use the mutations of uh, diphtheria toxins that I have. So I have all of Jack Murphy's library, which is great. We'll plug them all into this platform. What regions of the toxin mediate the interaction with different cytosolic factors? It becomes a great way to screen drug libraries for things that might be toxin entry inhibitors. Um, You can start doing genetic studies. So there's 500 to 1,000 proteins at the early endosome. There is not an organ or an organ system that doesn't have a disease-related to endosomal trafficking. Alzheimer's, neurodegenerative diseases, it's a defect in uh, endosomal trafficking. There are novel coming out in the last year or two uh, uh, sort of antibodies that affect the trafficking of LDL. Atherosclerosis. Actually, in heart failure, you get altered trafficking of endosomal pathways with altered calcium hemostasis that affects erythrogenicity and affects contractility. In the liver, it's the lysosomal storage diseases, NASH um, trans- so, transcytosis across the GI epithelium you might be able to potentially study, and the list goes on and on. In infectious disease, it's pretty obvious. We talked about immunogenicity. Um, any organ system, this might be a potentially useful platform. So hopefully today you learned something about diphtheria, you learned something about diphtheria-based fusion protein toxins, you learned something about mechanism of entry across the endosomal membrane, and you learned a little bit about how do we study these uh, processes in the lab. Um, A lot of people contributed to this work, both Um, Some of the work was when I did my PhD, some of the work is here. Um, I want to give a big shout out to Rick who lets me squat in his lab and use some of his resources. Um, Members of his lab who have really been helpful, Um, Yan who has made more endosomes than you could ever imagine. Uh, Susan Kennedy was a tech who helped processing a lot of samples for mass spec. Ken Eli, who always listen to my wacky ideas and put it back in perspective. Um, Scott Gerber, um, who really helped with a lot of the proteomics work here at Dartmouth. And as I mentioned, um, some funding from the Hitchcock Foundation and the Department of Medicine. Thank Thanks, you. Ryan. People have questions. So I'm curious the, the amount of
0: back-and-forth traffic in between the um, if you were interested in impacting uh, unfolded protein response or any ER stress related to the disease, quite a number, can you take advantage of this to shuttle back into the ER? Or is that, would that require some of the other cell and some of the tops in
1: It's a great question, and it's, it may not maybe not just delivering things, but can you actually maybe alter trafficking pathways, right? Because that's what a lot of the disease is. Things are getting sorted into the wrong compartment. So I hope that maybe you can, right? Um, In a lot of the disease states, there's something that's altered the trafficking pathway. So things must be getting recruited to the vesicles or interacting. Maybe there's post-translational modifications. So one advantage of mass spec is you can actually study the post-translational modifications at the same time. So um, it may not just be that you're delivering things, but can you actually start to shift or change where things go? And so can you shift things back in the retrograde direction, for example? I, I don't know. It will be a very interesting thing to do. Garbage shuttle. A, a garbage shuttle? Get rid of them? Who knows, Right. Um, you know, there's been an explosion of endosomal research just in general in the last few years. It's really growing exponentially. And I think that we're sort of just understanding how these pathways work and interact. So time will tell. We have time for
0: one more question. Well, I have three. But <laughs> <laughs> A right. tripartite. One, okay. one tripartite. Right, part, one tripartite. So the first question, I'll try to make it simple and quick. Does the molecule have to regenerate that disulfide bond when it after it slides through the membrane?
1: No, you want release of the disulfide bond because what all the disulfide bond is linking the catalytic domain to the pore. Okay. Right. So you want it to be released so that it, it can go away but there might be scenarios where maybe you don't want it to go away because if you could keep a protein there on the cytoplasmic surface, there's great implications. So I mentioned, for example, that botulinum neurotoxin A doesn't get fully released. So there's, there's five serotypes of botulinum. All of them only last for a few days except for A. It lasts for three months, right? People can be paralyzed for 90 months. This is why Botox works because you have these long duration of this flaccid paralysis, right? Um, and so it's not so much the turnover of the protein anymore that's in the cytosol. It's the turnover of the entire vesicle itself. So there's probably games you can play there. Second
0: question. Two quick ones. One, why does the bacteria, why does bacteriophage make this? And the second question is, why do you die of respiratory distress?
1: Um, so I don't know the answer to your second question, why the bacteriophage exists. It's probably been advantageous. It's, because it's been around for a long time, and for whatever reason, it's able to propagate or live, right? So that's worked out for it, but why, I can't answer the question. So the ARDS is actually really interesting, uh, because it's not pneumonia. What actually is happening is you're getting pulmonary edema. You're getting disruption. You're getting destruction of the endothelial barrier. So that epidermal growth factor is on the endothelium, and so those die. Now those capillaries become really, really leaky, and that's what causes the pulmonary edema.
0: So, please help me uh, thank Brian again for